In the first episode of this podcast series, I didn't do much to hide my resentment towards landlords. That's because buying up properties that already exist and then charging people for the right to live in them doesn't strike me as a particularly socially useful thing to do. Why, just because I don't have the capital to buy my own house, should I be forced to pay for someone else's mortgage? But as became clear in our episode on London's rental crunch, given the society we currently live in, where social housing has been decimated, we're also, frustratingly, reliant on private landlords. When a bunch of landlords sold their properties over the course of the pandemic, it didn't exactly work out in our favour. So, what should we make of the role landlords play in our current housing crisis? And to put it in more crude terms, are all landlords bastards? Welcome to Crash Course with Michael Walker, the show where I choose a topic I think is vital for understanding the world today and make a whole series about it. Topics in the pipeline include whether COVID changed the world and the politics of China. But right now, we're on a topic very close to my heart. Renting. In this series, we'll be looking at the dire state of Britain's rental crisis, who's to blame for its depravities, and how we could make finding a secure home less of a catastrophe for anyone without bags of cash. To find out whether all landlords are indeed bastards, I will, later in this episode, be speaking to a well-placed private landlord. First, though, I wanted to get an account of the harm at least some landlords do to their tenants. And so I spoke to two people whose job it is to represent renters. First up is Al McLenahan. He's a former estate agent who now runs Justice for Tenants. That's an organisation that represents renters taking legal action against bad landlords. I started by asking Al what makes a bad landlord and what behaviour might make him take a landlord to court. First of all, there's what, what they don't do, which is, I think, the common thread. So um, a lot of landlords are maybe a little bit hands-off and don't take any steps to be aware of what they need to do. So they won't do any maintenance in the property. There might be damp, there might be mould, there won't be a gas safety certificate, electrical safety certificate. Um, and often it's because they know they can sort of just get away with it, give poor condition housing, get rent from it, not really spend any time. Uh, but sometimes also at the other end you get the landlords who will be quite extreme in terms of what they do and how they treat tenants and those are the ones where it's especially especially important to take legal action because there needs to be some kind of deterrent to change that behavior i mean i can give you some examples can you give me some examples yeah yeah so i mean examples these ones will all be from hearings that i've represented tenants in um some of the more kind of extreme examples, um, we had one where we recovered a, uh, a smidgen over £50,000 of rent for um, house sharers, where in COVID, in winter, the landlord basically removed one entire wall of the house where the kitchen was uh, to try and extend the property to grow its value, because part and perhaps he knew the tenants wouldn't be able to leave during COVID times. And that meant the tenants had a kitchen with no wall, exposed to the elements for months and months and months uh, through winter and no living room because the builders were storing their tools. And to give an idea of this landlord, he'd already been uh, convicted of this offence before, many years ago as part of his portfolio. And I think one of the more shocking parts was that one day he just turned up with a bin liner full of asbestos that he'd removed from another property, gave it to the tenants and said, please dispose of this. Fairly shocking. 
I guess a couple of other ones. One that was, I think, really upsetting, um, really, really upsetting. I was very impressed by the strength of character of the tenants. And there were a couple who had moved into a property about 13-odd years ago. They had two children in that property they were renting. And their children, by the time they were about 8 or 10, um, they had a new landlord who bought the property. And he wanted the tenants out. Um, uh, but he hadn't got a license for the property. There was disrepair in the property. And he refused to do work for the property. Uh, and, in fact, he came around and told the tenants, you know, black people don't deserve any nice things, so I'm not going to do anything to this property. There was damp. There was mould. The fittings in the bathroom had torn away from the wall, so water was running down. It was rotting the floor. The council came in, served him something called an improvement notice, which legally requires him to do work to improve the, the faults because it was a, what's called a category one hazard, immediate risk to the well-being of the occupants. Uh, the landlord did nothing. The landlord, when they would come round, would be very threatening, threaten them with um, like tools, like uh, workman tools. Uh, and in the end... Um, the tenant ended up getting some advice and coming to justice for tenants because that water that was leaking in the bathroom for year for years uh, rotted and the tenant fell through the floor and we had to present the evidence in the tribunal the photographs where the fire brigade came and she was supporting herself on the floor of the bathroom with her arms so that hoping the rest of it didn't collapse with her bottom half uh, in the in the roof of the living room um, and you think about just the combined effects of those poor conditions, not just on physical health, but the mental well-being and the development of children when they see their parents being treated a certain way, um, not having safety and security in their home. Uh, I think it's that's kind of particularly upsetting because that's going to affect the development of those of those children as well. Um, and I suppose on the subject of children suffering. Maybe the one that was the most most impactful. The landlord had bought an, a Chinese takeaway, converted it into an office. There was a shed in the back. He rented that shed to a migrant couple with a, a baby infant. It was an un, it was unsuitable for humans to live in. Um, there was electrical sockets near the sink. There was damp and mold everywhere. So the electrical socket near the sink that was a category one hazard. It's really risky. There was a category one hazard for every other electrical point because there was so much damp in the walls right next to the sockets. And there was a hole in the roof of the ceiling where water had come in. And every day, while the, the, the father went to work, the mother of the infant would have to clean all the walls and all the ceilings on a ladder with like a bleach solution to get rid of the mold. This is every single day because the black mould was there, and they would have to leave all the windows open at any time of year to aerate it, to ventilate it. But it was an old Chinese restaurant. The drain outside was blocked by fat and by oil, so it was hundreds and hundreds of drain fly there. And so because the windows were open, they'd all come in and roost on the ceiling. So after they'd ventilated, they'd have to chase out all these drain fly. Um, and the tenant only realised that something was wrong when they or that they had an option to get help when they couldn't register to vote because they weren't living in a, a human habitable address. The council said, we, we can't register you there because where you are uh, doesn't exist. And it was really bad. Um, the baby infant ended up in hospital for a period with respiratory issues. Um, and it's, it's kind of 
the sad part with a lot of these is when you look at the the thing that led the tenant to get help, the thing that led the tenant to contact the council to find out that they were entitled to some kind of standards was often just a random act of good fortune. So for every tenant who comes to Justice for Tenants, there's probably 30, 40, 50 in the same situation who just have no idea and they just put up with it and live with it. And often they're targeted and picked because it's known that they don't know how to have their rights met. They don't know how to get help and support. So they can be targeted with these exploitative behaviours. Um, it's all rather sad. And I suppose any landlords listening to this episode, probably what they'll say is, you've given us some shocking examples of bad landlords. We can all agree that those are terrible landlords and they should not be in the business. Um, but they, these are exceptions. These are not characteristic of the sector in general. How would you respond to that? Well, those examples, I, I agree, are not characteristic, I would say. Um, I have a bit of insight in this from, from before working at Justice for Tenants. I worked as a, as a letting agent. I owned a, a letting agency. And I would say that um, a good chunk, maybe a bit less than half of landlords, were honestly trying to do their very best to give their tenants a home that would be of a standard that they would want to live in maybe 30, 40%, just off the top of my head. Another good chunk, maybe another 30 or 40%, maybe might grumble a little bit about having to do things, but were overall, you know, decent um, and, and, and provided decent quality home. They might complain about the cost of maintenance and repairs, but they'd do it. And then you'd have maybe about a third who were looking only from a financial perspective and were indifferent perhaps to the, the suffering of tenants and were just thinking, what do I have to do? How can I maximise my money? And the, the, the well-being of the tenants was a complete non-factor and sometimes there was almost, um, uh, I guess you could say, an element of almost entrepreneurial pride at having a complete disregard for anything other than the, the, the financials about it. Um, and, and, that, and part of the problem is that if someone is willing to operate unlawfully, in most parts of the country, unless there's a good council enforcement team, the environment is such that you will make more money operating unlawfully. A lot of the recent legislation specifically says we're bringing in more powers to enforce against landlords to break business models that make financial sense, and they make financial sense because the risk of enforcement having, happening against you is so small, and if it does happen, the fines are so paltry that you can just factor that in as a cost of doing business. So it's it is a minority of landlords who are looking to be exploitative and willing to operate unlawfully, but it's not 2% or 5%. It's not more than 50%. It's somewhere in the middle. It's a very significant minority, and it's, it's too large of a minority. But it isn't most. So can anyone be a landlord? And I suppose also you, you take landlords to court. Often what you will win for tenants is a rent repayment order, so they have to pay back some, some rents. There's you know, a punishment of sorts. But can they still go on and rent out other properties or can you get struck off? Um, you can be a landlord. Anyone can be a landlord as long as they have a property asset. It doesn't matter if you have a rent repayment order against you. You can still continue to rent that same property. Um, often the landlord will continue to rent the same property, still without a license, still without fire safety features. Um, 
and they'll just maybe target more vulnerable tenants if they're really committed to the business model. There are mechanisms in place to prevent someone being a landlord. They're, they're relatively new and they're almost never used yet, um, partly because uh, the local authorities, the councils, don't know how to use those powers. There was no funding for training when um, these new powers were brought in. It's one of the things Justice for Tenants offers for free for council enforcement teams. That was Al McLenaghan talking to me about the landlord's justice for tenants come up against in court. And what was striking throughout that conversation was how convinced Al was that the cases he sees are only the tip of the iceberg. To get justice against bad landlords, tenants have to be empowered and knowledgeable or lucky enough to be put into contact with one of the country's few under-resourced tenants' rights organisations. Perhaps Al's most damning judgment on Britain's private rental sector is his belief that if you are a landlord who wants to maximise profits, it probably makes sense to try and break the law. Al, though, didn't cover the whole range of gripes tenants might have with their landlords. Because of the nature of his job and the nature of housing law in England, the cases he deals with almost universally concern housing conditions instead of the price of housing. But the cost of rent can matter just as much for tenants. We'll get on to that in one moment. First, though, a message about the show. I'm really excited about how the first series of Crash Course is shaping up. I've spoken to brilliant experts, inspirational activists and tenants on the front line of Britain's housing crisis. And in doing so, I think I'm personally getting a real handle on the roots of what's going wrong with renting in Britain and how to fix it. I hope you are too. I've also learned that making a whole new podcast can be pretty resource intensive. I've already drawn upon the talents of lots of good people who've worked and continue to work really hard to bring this all together. And building up a solid base of patrons will be essential both to cover the upfront costs of this series and to make the project sustainable into the long term. We all love making this podcast and we have big plans For the future, in the pipeline, a series about whether COVID changed the world, the politics of China and trade unionism. But to make this possible, we need your support to do so. You can sign up for as little as £3 a month at patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. In doing so, you'll be helping to guarantee the future of the show. And you'll also get access to at least two shows a month, which are for patrons only. That's patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. Thank you. We really do appreciate it. You've now heard Al McClanahan lay out the behaviour of really bad landlords. But even people with law-abiding, upstanding landlords might well have some major gripes at them right now. And that's because so many of us are facing extortionate rent hikes. For a summary of how the current wave of rent increases are affecting private tenants across the board, I spoke to Nikita Kwashi. She leads on research into the private rental sector at housing charity Shelter. So we conducted some polling that was um, conducted by YouGov um, on behalf of Shelter of private renters in across the country, but I'll narrow it in on London specifically. Um, and what we saw in London was that about 300,000 private renters, so that's more than one in six private renters in the city, have had their rent increased in the in the month prior, so that would have been in August. Also with that, 827,000 adults are spending at least half of their household income on rent. Um, So that's two in five private renters. And this is 
incre- incredibly worrying, um, especially because official guidelines usually say that people should be spending no more than 30% of the income on renting. So the fact that we have close to a million people sp- spending half half their income is is incredibly troubling and it, it means that people are are really faced with tough decisions about um how they spend that money, what options are available to them, how they how much they can spend on other essential goods at a time when food prices are rising, energy bills are rising, wages are stagnating. Um, and I think what really worries me about this is that um is when we look at the diversity of tenants in the sector. Um, and so thinking about um, tenants on, on housing benefit, for example, um, one of the work that we do is on um, income discrimination. And this is when landlords and letting agents refuse to let out properties to people just because they're on, on benefits. So they're effectively locked out of the private renting sector. And so when you have um, when you have rent skyrocket, skyrocketing at this at this pace, you really have a group of people who are excluded from the sector and who are at risk of of homelessness, pure and simple. Again, thinking about um, single parents with children, thinking about racialized communities um, as well. There are there are groups of people who are already marginalized in the system who, because of increased rents, um, are really are really feeling the brunt and the pressure of of an inadequate um, and a broken private renting sector. Nikita there was telling me specifically about the stats for London, where renting costs are highest. But the picture for the rest of the country is almost as bleak. Shelter's research found that across the UK, one in seven tenants had their rent increased this August. That's 1.1 million people. They also found that one in three tenants are spending at least half their household income on rent. And even more staggeringly, almost 2.5 million renters are either behind or constantly struggling to pay their rent. That figure has increased by a whopping 45% since April this year. Now, some of the changes in the wider economy which caused those recent rent increases were set out in episode two of Crash Course. But in our conversation, Nikita also highlighted how the power our legal system gives to landlords has set the context for such steep hikes. Landlords can increase rent. There's no there's no cap on how much they can um, increase rents by. And this is happening within the context of, frankly, a broken private rented system, a, a system that doesn't have much regulation, where you have policies like Section 21, whereby um, landlords can evict a private tenant um, outside of a fixed-term notice for no reason whatsoever, um, and within two months. So when you have a situation like this, for example, when a landlord chooses to to increase their rent, for sure it's going to be really hard for a tenant to feel like they're able, to, that they, they can challenge this because of the real risk of losing their homes if they do so. Um, we also have um, a lack of accountability for landlords. There's no, there's no register... Um, no national register that allows us to see where landlords are operating, whether they're meeting um, safety requirements, how much they're charging. Like this lack of information, this lack of of data means it's hard for us to be able to paint a picture of what's happening. It also means that when we give advice as an organisation, when we give advice to renters who want to be able to challenge their rents, 
Um, one thing that we say, for example, is to if a if they want to negotiate with the landlord to push back, to be able to to show how much is being charged elsewhere in the area, without some sort of register or portal or that allows people to have access to that information, it's really hard to like push back against this. So there's there's different aspects aspects of the system that are faulty that aren't working. That means that affordability is becoming a big issue for households and different tenants in the sector. So, Nikita and Al have provided me with quite the charge sheet. From Al, we've learnt that a significant minority of landlords have little regard for the welfare of their tenants, and if they break the law, most of them will get away with it. Nikita then broke down the effect rent hikes are having on tenants and how little recourse there currently exists to resist them. And in part, that lack of recourse is because of the dreaded Section 21. This is a part of the law which allows landlords to evict tenants with only two months' notice without having to give any reason at all. Well, now it's time to put all that to a landlord. And I spoke to one who's very well placed to defend his industry. Greg Suman is Lettings Director at Martin Gerrard Estate Agents. He's also president-elect of the Association of Residential Letting Agents Property Mark Division. And he's a landlord of free properties in London. I started by asking Greg about the negative perception many tenants have of their landlords and whether he thinks landlords have an easy ride and have too much power vis-a-vis their tenants. Well, from my experience, it's the exact opposite, in fairness, um, because tenants have approximately 250 uh, acts and pieces of regulation and legislation that uh, protect them, that landlords have to adhere to. And uh, landlords, uh, well, um, I'd I'd be interested to hear what you mean by landlords have powers and what powers they have. Now, obviously, Section 21, uh, or how some um, organisations call the the no-fault evictions, uh, which I strongly disagree with in terms of the term, uh, is, is something you'd like to cover, I presume? Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm I'm very interested in covering Section 21. Um, and I suppose that's because for me, this is really the key to landlords having more power than tenants, because it might be the case that there's lots of different pieces of legislation which supposedly protect tenants. But if it's the case, as it currently is, um, that tenancies are usually very short term, and that even if you're within a tenancy, a landlord can get a Section 21 and through no fault of your own, kick you out within two months. That, for me, in itself, weights the power in favour of the landlord. Because if you um, try to assert any legal right you may or may not have, you're risking losing your home. And so for me, that's why I believe the the system to be sort of weighted in in favour of landlords against tenants. So let's cover that. I suppose the phenomenon you're talking about is the uh, assured shorthold tenancy. Uh, It's a relatively recent uh, tenure. Uh, it was introduced in 1988, uh, which also encouraged uh, a lot of investment into the private rented sector, which filled the gap that uh, um, was created as a result of lack of investment into the social housing. So you may or may not be aware, but there are 10 million rented homes in the UK. Uh, figures often misreported as 4.4. Um, but 4.4 households, uh, 4.4 million households is actually the private rented sector in England alone. So we're talking about a huge uh, percentage of population that is affected by all of this. There are 20 million tenants in the UK. So a figure that is 
very, very large. Um, and we need to understand that every interference in the rental market through legislation and regulation has a direct knock-on effect on those people who are, in my opinion, the most vulnerable in the current housing market. So as a result of the Section 21 being introduced, landlords had um, the reassurance that by investing their money into the private rented sector, um, they will be able to have a, um, a, f- a fair relationship with uh, their customers, tenants. Now, if we reduce um, the landlord's rights where they think I may not be able to get a bad tenant out, and it's important to, to, to clarify that no landlord would ever think of evicting a good tenant, um, then there's just going to be less and less supply, which is what we're currently seeing, which is why rents are skyrocketing. So there's a couple of things to mention there. First of all, I think I want to pick you up on this idea that no landlord would ever evict a good tenant. Now, I see what you're saying on on one level. No landlord would evict a tenant who is paying them the rent they want to receive and isn't causing them any problems. But for me, it could be the case that a landlord says, look, um, property prices are increasing in the area where I own this home. I could rent this property to someone richer or I could rent this property to someone who isn't asserting their rights, because I imagine for some landlords it is frustrating when you've got a tenant who knows the law. And they can say, look, um, I would prefer to rent this property to someone else who might be um, less assertive in terms of the, the repairs they want doing and who might be able to pay more for it. So, you know, from the perspective of, of a landlord, that might make that person a bad tenant or not an ideal tenant. But from my perspective, you know, that tenant hasn't done anything wrong yet. They could still be evicted. Do you see where I'm coming from? I do. And, and I, I suppose um, I need to clarify that the, the term bad tenant is a very subjective one. Um, so, uh, yes, quite right. A bad tenant for one landlord could be a great tenant for another. Um, but equally, we need to understand that these are private landlords who are investing their personal uh, savings into providing a home to somebody else. They don't have to do it. And if, if they stop doing that, we have to understand what will happen if they stop providing that accommodation. Now, we've got about 11 million people in the private rented sector. We are already witnessing rents going up. It's a direct result of, of landlords leaving. And yes, whilst we can argue that uh, landlords should um, have even more duty of care to tenants, um, the reality is simply that they will vote with their feet and they will leave the private rented sector. It goes without saying, I disagree with Greg that landlords have more rights than tenants, and I disagree with his characterisation of no-fault evictions. But he does strike upon a sad truth in our current system. Because there are so few alternatives to private renting in Britain, any regulation imposed on landlords does risk them leaving the market. And as we saw in the last episode, that can lead to rising rents. Of course, that doesn't mean we should give up on reform. I'd see the potential for landlords selling up in response to increased renters' rights as presenting a challenge to be solved, rather than something which should limit our ambitions. But I'll leave the practicalities of that for future episodes. For now, I wanted to get Greg's take on the issue highlighted by Nikisha Kwashi, the current wave of rent hikes. And I asked Greg whether he thinks it can ever be legitimate for a landlord to hike rents for their tenants in the middle of a cost of living crisis, even if they own their property outright, and so therefore don't 
have mortgage costs to cover. If somebody hasn't got uh, mortgage expenses because they own the property outright, is it fair that they uh, they can increase the rent? Um, uh, yes, I believe they can, and, and I think it's important to look at facts by how much they're increasing it by. So you've used, um, I think you said about fourteen percent or fifteen percent um, rent increases in London. We- I said six, 16, which is 16. the average in, okay, in London. Okay, 16. Well, my, my data actually... Yeah, mine, was, my, mine was 15 for reference this summer. Okay, so, so my data shows that in London, rents have actually gone up by about 30 to 35%. So we're seeing a considerably higher rent increase ratio than, than what the data has reported. Uh, despite that, uh, we... Uh, we deal with renewal tenancies within our agency as well. And we've seen that majority of landlords are choosing to keep the rent considerably lower than what they can achieve on the open market because they value their tenants and they have a genuine uh, personal relationship with most of them. I've got two properties which I'm letting out. I haven't increased my rent for about two years now. Um, I need to increase it because my costs have gone up, but I'm reluctant to do so because I know it'll have a huge impact on my tenants. Um, if they haven't got uh, any, well, if they haven't got a mortgage and the mortgage hasn't increased, um, inflation is still at twelve point six percent. Retail price index currently is that. Uh, if their rent increase is six percent, which is the average of what our renewal landlords are charging tenants, it's half of what the inflation is. So they're actually keeping the rent lower than what. It should have gone up to. Now, there are many reasons for that, because it could be argued that whilst inflation is at 12 percent, people's wages haven't gone up. And yes, all of those are valid. Uh, equally, landlords wages haven't gone up. Uh, their costs for maintenance uh, have. Uh, so if you want to buy a washing machine, it's going to be more expensive now than it was 10 years ago. If you want to buy a new boiler, likewise, that's more expensive. Even rewiring and the uh, electrical safety certificate, which they didn't have to do previously, all of those things add up. Equally, following the Tenant Fees Act, where the tenant is not allowed to pay any fee associated with renting a property, um, that's an additional burden on the landlord. And and I can carry on. There are many, many other things that landlords have to uh, pay for. For example, the licensing, which most local authorities are introducing, uh, the energy efficiency standards that have to be adhered to, uh, all of these things are right and proper, but it comes at a cost. Now, if the landlords don't pass that cost on, they will be making a loss. And if they make a loss, sooner or later, they have to make a decision to sell. And that is bad for tenants. That was Greg Suman, President-elect of Arla Property Mark. So we've heard from our free guests. But how far have they taken us in answering the question that motivated this episode? Well, I think from our McClanahan's testimony, we can definitively conclude that at least some landlords are bastards and that those bastards make up at least a significant minority of the sector. From Nikita's evidence, we can conclude with a high degree of confidence that a sector dominated by private landlords is not working for most tenants. And... As for Greg, well, I'll leave it to our audience to decide how persuaded you are by his defence of landlords in Britain. All I will say is that I'm very grateful he was open to having a frank conversation on hostile territory. And I should also be clear, because of a few technical problems we experienced in our first few attempts at an interview, he did end up giving me an admirable amount of his time. Of course, in terms of our ideologies and material interests, I have very little in common with Greg. 
But that made for a pretty fruitful longer interview about the philosophy of landlords and what, if anything, landlords contribute to society. That will be released as a standalone, unedited interview in around a week's time. I really enjoyed making it. It's a very fiery listen. And that one will be Patreon only. So if you haven't already become a supporter, do head over to patreon.com forward slash Crash Course Pod. Crash Course is produced and edited by Lewis Bassett and Patrick Herdman. Patrick Herdman does the sound design. For now, I've been Michael Walker and you've been listening to Crash Course. Crash Course. 